Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this thesis theatre for Mark Lochneitz. Um, my name is Gabriel Schenk. I'm a professor at Signum University's Faculty of Literature and Language, and I'm very delighted and excited to present to you Mark Lochneitz uh, tonight, who will be um, explaining his research uh, and his master's thesis a hacker as magician in cybermancer fiction. He's going to explain exactly what that means. Um, as part of his degree in um, literature for the master's program at Signum University, Mark has done a thesis, uh, which is an original piece of research. Um, and uh, I forget what the exact word count was in the end. So can you, do you know, Mark? Uh, whatever the maximum was, it was a couple short of that. <laughs> It was it, it was a chunk of work and uh, and 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 really really excellent research and I can't wait to uh, for Mark to tell you all about it. Um, thank you very much for joining us. If you would like to participate, this is an interactive session. Uh, do be aware of the questions box because you can type out questions and comments, and do type those out as soon as you think them, and we'll get through to them uh, as we go on through the this session. Um, and if you would like to be unmuted and talk directly uh, to Mark, either through your microphone or through whichever magical device you have at hand, um, then you can do so. Uh, and I will unmute you, but just be aware that this is being recorded and it will be going up on YouTube afterwards. So you might become a YouTube star and go viral. Um, but anyway, I've got my, um, my second screen here slash my enchanted mirror. Um, so that's where I'm going to be looking at all your comments as we go through this evening. Um, but um, this is really an opportunity for Mark to tell you all about his research and what he's been up to and explain uh, some of the uh, conclusions that he's come to through um, through looking at this topic. Uh, so I have to also um, introduce Mark properly, because um, you've got such a fascinating biography, Mark. Um, so you're a computer, a computer security consultant with over 20 years of professional experience in penetration testing, uh, which yeah. means ethical hacking. I hope you'll explain what that means in a moment. Uh, computer forensics and regulatory compliance. Uh, you've worked as the technology director of a K-12 school district, instructor for an NSA-certified MA program in information assurance, and a manager for a Fortune 200 technology company with over $16 billion uh, in annual revenue. You're also a private, licensed private investigator, certified information system security professional, and certified information systems auditor. Um, and, uh, and Mark leverages his experience with hackers and hacker culture to investigate the connections between technology and society in popular culture and literature. Um, so let's start off with your topic, which your thesis was about um, hackers and magicians. And I, I, I should also explain that I, I had the pleasure of supervising um, Mark uh, whilst he was working on this project. So. Um, that's why I'm here. <laughs> but uh, it, over to you, Mark. Um, tell us a little bit about why you were interested in hackers and magicians and, and sort of looking at them together. Well, I mean, obviously, as a, I'm, I'm more of a computer technologist than I am a scholar, uh, but uh, I've, I'm trying to broaden my horizons a little bit. I started off uh, in technology, you know, as, as you mentioned, working for a K-12 school district, and uh, I worked my, my way up there. And while I was completing that, I'd originally started college as a secondary education teacher. I was planning on being a, a high school English teacher. And the school I went to, Michigan State, had a lot of internship and they had a mandatory fifth year of internship for, for a bachelor's. And, and during all those internships, I decided that I really probably wouldn't be a good candidate for somebody who was teaching uh, a captive audience. <laughs> I just, it probably wasn't the thing for me. Um, and computer science was too hard because that took a lot of math and that required effort. So I took the uh, path of least resistance, which was to be an English major. And it actually worked out for me really well because I ended up writing a lot of reports, uh, doing a lot of, uh, you know, development in, in the corporate world, uh, as you know, uh, Gabriel, because we have this program at Signum, the path program, there's a lot of value in teaching humanities and good communications uh, skills to people outside of the 
you know, academia. So it worked out really well for me. Uh, one of the things that I was really interested in was, of course, science fiction and fantasy. And uh, the thing that really started turning me on was the Babylon 5 television series back in the 90s. And in particular, it had these really great epic themes, you know, good versus evil and, you know, a lot of real mythic kind of stuff. And I got really excited about that, as did my friends and my family. Uh, and we discovered that uh, there was a woman named Farrah Mendelssohn, who some of you may know, who uh, uh, was putting together a conference in, in York, England, uh, called Babylon 5 in Academia. And being uh, particularly naive but brave, I decided to submit a paper, which ended up being pretty terrible in terms of a paper, and I couldn't get into the book that went with the proceedings because it would have taken too much editing, uh, but I was encouraged to continue with it. I decided, well, maybe I can do this someday, come back to it, and 20, 20 years later, this is what I did. I came back and decided to uh, to take a shot at it. Well, that's um, fantastic and glad that you have. Um, what about um, magicians and hackers in particular? So a lot of people are familiar with these terms. You know, magicians are people who use magic and hackers are people who hack computers and so on. Um, you were looking at uh, sort of overlaps between these two groups of figures in literature. What made you kind of make any connections between these two groups to begin with? Well, um, one of those was in particular, again, Babylon 5 was one of the good examples that it gave me. And they had this group of characters called the Technomancers. And the Technomancers were this group of people who went around and looked like wizards, act like wizards, uh, but they basically used technology to make their magical effects. Uh, and I started thinking about this and I read a lot of science fiction, probably, you know, four days of science, four hours of science fiction or fantasy a day, uh, every day for the last couple of decades. And I read all of these great books where technology and magic were kind of mixed together. And uh, I started thinking about Arthur C. Clarke's third law that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistingu indistinguishable from magic. And I wondered, well, maybe if that's true, then maybe the practitioners, the experts of that are also uh, you know, somewhat indistinguishable. They have some overlap there. Uh, I don't mean that to say that they actually are wizards, because obviously hackers don't have magical powers, at least none of the ones that I've met, and I certainly don't. Uh, but there's a lot of overlap in kind of the role that they fill. Um, whether you believe in magic or not, uh, there's this kind of sense that, you know, magicians are kind of these wise old men. You know, sometimes they're good, like Gandalf, or sometimes they're evil or misguided, like Saruman, or, or one of those characters, you know, from the, from the Tolkien works. Um, and so I started going a little bit further with this, and I realized that they actually have a lot of characteristics in common as well. You know, they have uh, many of the same traits and many of the same abilities. You know, to give you an example, if someone, you might worry about a magician cursing you. Uh, but honestly, I would rather be cursed by a magician in the real world than be cursed by a hacker because they could probably do a whole lot more damage. Uh, so I've been thinking about this for literally two decades uh, and finally had a chance to write some of it out. And I, I picked up, I picked a few books where I found that there were hacker protagonists that were working magic specifically. And I won't say this is a large body of work, but I found enough examples that I was able to uh, compare them. And that are the three works that are in my paper, Werner Vinge's uh, True Names, uh, Charles Strauss's The Laundry Files series, and uh, G. Willow Wilson's A Leaf the Unseen. Mm -hmm. um, and so I took this a little further and said, well, maybe we could call this something. I like to try and coin, oh, that's annoying, coin terms. <laughs> um, I like to try and coin terms. So I decided, hey, let's call this cybermancy. So uh, I, I had the idea that cybermancy would be fiction where mastery of technology or scientific lore, uh, especially, specifically by hackers, led to magic or magical effects. And I kind of took it from there. Well, that was beautiful timing as well, because as you had the idea for Cybermancy, a light bulb lit up above your head, or maybe it was divine inspiration um, from uh, from another realm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's so great hearing. <laughs> exactly. I keep one in the back, but <laughs> it it was so it's so it was so great working with someone who has the technical expertise, because most of the time, us literary critics are doddery, you know, people who don't really know what's going on in the real world. And we read novels about various things and we don't have that knowledge. Um, but you do, you, you, you know, you're reading and analyzing novels about hackers, but you know what hackers are and, and what 
actually you know constitutes hacking um and you and you're absolutely right about that kind of the reception of hackers in terms of you know we don't i don't think of it as magic but it it feels like magic you know that i if, if someone said i'm gonna hack you or something i would be terrified like i like it would be like a curse uh, and i would imagine that they could probably turn my fridge against me or something like we, we live in such a digital world now where if you have the ability to manipulate electronical and digital things you have the power to move things through through the air turn things against you um i mean the you know the fact that we're talking to each other now over the internet um and we're in different parts of the world is is like magic in itself so you know it's that arthur c clark idea but i think what you're doing is the kind of turning that on its head and and saying okay well what about you know technology and and uh you know the 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 um sort of nefarious parts of kind of hacking and and manipulating technology isn't that like magic as well uh and vice versa um so could, could you tell us a little bit more about what hacking actually is because there's a lot of ideas about hacking um but what what actually is hacking and what do you mean by an ethical hacker as well okay so um Ethical hacking, uh, a penetration tester, basically what my job would be is that I would get contracted by an organization, usually a, a company, a corporation, or a government agency or a hospital, and they would basically give me some basic information like what the IP addresses for their computers were, um, or even I could go out and find those, and I would determine what the scope of their organization was. So say, for example, I was going to hack lockmeet.com. I would determine, you know, where does their web server live on the internet? Where is the mail server go? What uh, what networks are, do they have connected? And that's what we call the reconnaissance stage. Um, beyond reconnaissance, then the next uh, the next set of issues is to try and see what vulnerabilities are out there. So we would use some security assessment tools, uh, some of which have very uh, epic and mythic sounding names like Nessus. In fact, the biggest and most used security analysis program is based after a centaur. Um, it's Nessus. Uh, so we would run that program and then determine here's some uh, some servers that maybe have some security vulnerabilities or something like that. Uh, and then having done that, I would then use uh, software tricks to try and break into uh, servers if they were not sufficiently patched. Uh, I might try to um, guess passwords. So I could, uh, you know, one of the things that we would do would be to identify all the users on the system. So we could enumerate through the top 1,000 most popular first names and last names using census data, and then see, does this user exist? M.Lockneat, B.Lockneat, L.Smith. Uh, figure out who might be a valid user, try and guess some simple passwords, uh, and you'd be surprised how well that works. In a large organization, you can usually guess a password because almost every well-organized company has a rule that says you have to change your password quarterly. And what lines up with quarterly passwords? The seasons. Mm -hmm. So there are a large number of people who have spring 20 or spring 20 exclamation point with a capital S as their password. Uh, if you've got a thousand users, there's a good chance it'll work. So we try using software to break into it. We try doing um, you know, the password guessing, all kinds of little tricks like that. Uh, and then last but not least, tricking the users by sending them email. Uh, one thing that people don't really understand about hacking is that I don't really have the ability to pick somebody out of the crowd. I can't pick on, you know, Serena Higgins or Chris Swank or, or you know, Gabriel and hack them specifically. I might get lucky, but if I don't care who I'm hacking, it's really easy to get somebody. Uh, and the easiest way to get people is by tricking them. And I think we've really seen that a lot in our political environment is that people are just not very good um, at uh, identifying bad information. You know, we're still culturally uh, tuned to uh, speaking to people individually and kind of trusting people. Uh, so we're really easy to manipulate, especially over the internet when it comes to getting tricked into clicking on links or installing programs or giving passwords or believing propaganda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's really interesting because I think a lot of people have that idea about hackers as being more powerful than perhaps they are. Um, and that sometimes the the way you hack something is quite simple. It's guessing a password. Um, but there's still this kind of idea in the popular imagination of of hackers as being all powerful. Um, and so your 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 theory in this thesis is that um, computer hackers 
are presented in, a, in as masters of sort of having these powerful abilities and and in these texts at least on this kind of group of texts that you're classing as uh cybermancer fiction um these hackers are really taking the place of that that wizards and magicians would take in earlier texts as the kind of manipulators of reality so does that mean that in these texts the hackers aren't anything like real world hackers uh, well, in science fiction, there's always this layer of abstraction. You know, most authors don't actually know how hacking works. Although I will say that two of my authors, Werner Bingy and uh, Charles Strauss, probably actually do. Uh, so we don't really see the details of that too much. But you do see that in other works. Like if anyone's seen the television show Mr. Robot, that is amazingly, amazingly accurate in terms of actually displaying it. Uh, so it, they come very close to showing how it works in some of those things. But uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's 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 a lot more opportunistic. They're not hackers aren't powerful on a one to one basis, but on a one to many basis. You know, they're really powerful in a kind of asymmetrical sense. Mm. And the the text you didn't mention just then is is Alif the Unseen, uh, G. Willow Wilson, um, which you know exists in a world where magic. So divine magic, you you might say, or divine power, um, what intersects with digital, the digital world. So it's a kind of it's a different, you know, it's not an accurate portrayal of hacking, as such, because the world is different, and then we're we're and worlds are different. I mean, this is um, uh, it's, it's a fascinating novel, but I but I suppose the the act of hacking in this novel is that accurate? The way that leaf write code and stuff or, we, or is he not really hacking he's sort of more creating uh, well stuff. i think it is i think it is um with with the with with all of the books they each kind of had a different approach um mm. in the relation of hacking to magic you know so in the first one in Werner Vingi's book in true names it was all metaphorical they didn't pretend like they were actually uh, gaining any kind of magic they would go into this rpg type world with fantasy you know wizards and and so on um, so one version of it was metaphorical and charles strauss is kind of set in the real world but the idea is that uh, uh computer technology and mathematics can give you actual magical powers uh and then in Alif the unseen there's yet another view which is it's said in the context of islamic monotheism and it's almost like uh the hacker Alif is more like divinely inspired to create. He, he has an act of creation or sub-creation uh, that is divinely inspired and that gives him power like a hacker and like a magician as well. Mm -hmm. um, and Joe asks a question that is, is relevant to all of this. He, he asks, um, does the magician slash hacker connection work the other way too? The people who became magicians, alchemists, et cetera, in the real world, often seem like they're trying to find a workaround for laws of nature. Well, yeah, especially when we look at real world history, um, you know, the I, I really do think that a lot of the magicians, the, the people who are studying hermetic magic, who are looking at alchemy, you know, to them it was magic. But what they're doing is is what we would now call science. You know, they were doing the best they could to figure out chemistry, uh, to figure out electricity. Um, and, you know, only 400 years ago, there was really no real difference between, you know, magic and, and science. They really hadn't differentiated it like that. Um, so back in the, in the 1500s, there's a real interesting guy named Paracelsus. And I, I focused on him a little bit in my work. And this guy is, is just kooky. I mean, he is, he's a magician. He believes he's, he's doing magic. He's a Christian. He's doing Christian rituals. He's doing science. He, he coined real scientific terms. So in the same book, he's got information that turned out to be legitimate science, like identifying minerals legitimately for the first time. But then he also tells us how to make a homunculus or a little man out of feces and other body substances. So it's kind of crazy. So I think it does work the other way. I kind of think of the of the early alchemists and, and magicians as more or less misguided hackers who just didn't have the technology available to them at the time. But I'm sure they would be hackers if they're around today. Yeah, definitely. And you, so you touched on a few uh, big topics there when we were talking about magic. So this was a huge, huge thing. I mean, it is a huge thing. 
Uh, and we should say we were completely indebted to Professor Serena Higgins, who was your second reader, because yes. Serena is a master of the arcane arts and, you know, real expert on this field. Uh, her work is, is, is looks at this, uh, looks at magic and different types of magic. Um, what did you learn about magic during this thesis? I learned a ton because I came into this with no more understanding of magic other than, you know, what I'd read in a lot of fantasy books. So I had to start reading up on the whole academic field, which by the way is huge and contentious. So, you know, there's multiple disciplines, you know, multiple academic, you know, views of it. So I learned a lot uh, just by reading up on what people have written in the past. Uh, and some of the interesting things I, I found out um, in the process of just reading up on magic is, one is that there's a real history of kind of cultural imperialism uh, in, as in how magic was considered, which is to say that magic was kind of made the other. It was the anti-religion because it conflicted with, you know, the uh, European monotheism. And so it would often be branded as something that's outside or, or you know, or evil, kind of a, you know, a, you, you get my point. It was that a lot of the uh, witch hunting and, you know, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition stuff was really kind of trying to defend the status quo. So there's this whole element where magic really got a bad rap, I think, um, and actually has, you know, a productive place in society. There are cultures that use magic and it has a, a very useful function, whether or not the supernatural powers are real, it has a useful function. Uh, and another thing I found that was really interesting is the idea that magic tends to be focused on one-to-one -one relationships, uh, whereas religion is focused on large groups. So they're very, magic technology and, um, and, uh, and, uh, and religion are all kind of like three legs of a, of a table that go together, you know, they, yeah. they all contribute to the same thing and they have a lot of overlapping functions. And three huge, huge legs that you, you know, even it, just one of those topics would be a big thing to to take off. So you've done, you you know, you've done very well. And and as I say, we were very lucky to get Serena as as a second reader who could sort of help guide us because I'm not a, an expert on magic myself. Um, guide you through the kind of the maze of different um, types of magic. But what you were saying about the kind of the reception of magic is really interesting as well because that that is a kind of there is overlap there with the reception of hackers there's good hackers there's bad hackers um i although you've explained that you can't actually take control of my computer part of me is still thinking maybe you can and you're just saying that and and i'm so grateful that you're one of the good guys and i know you and you're very nice um <laughs> So, uh, uh, yeah, Serena's, <laughs> I'm chuckling because Serena's written a comment as, uh, e.g. Serena's the tyrant who made you chop it down. Yeah, we, we do have to say that the, this thesis could have been, I mean, it could be a book and it could still be a book in the future. Um, and so one of the, the things that Serena was able to help us do or help you do is sort of choose, uh, a pathway um, because this topic is so huge. Um, so we've been using that, that word magician um, and wizards and things. We've sort of been using these terms interchangeably. Um, what do you mean by magician in this thesis? Do you mean someone who's playing card tricks? Do you mean someone who's um, who's yeah, yeah. summoning so demons? I'm, I'm what, explicitly taking out of scope, out of scope um, stage magic. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's it's supernatural powers. So that is one of the things that um, I, I do try and differentiate pretty clearly is that, you know, it's certainly not stage magic. It's not sleight of hand, although that might be a piece of it. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's definitely some overlap even with stage magicians in that uh, and wizards, you know, the supernatural magicians and hackers are, and, and not to mention the stage magicians, they all have a certain amount of performance persona going on. Um, and it's surprising to a lot of people to learn this, but a lot of hackers are not really basement dwellers wearing hoodies, although I am admittedly in my basement 
uh, at night talking on a computer, uh, a lot of them, a lot of folks aren't. Now, granted, there are a lot of real technical kind of people that are, but there's a weird, large variety of people that are into computer security. Uh, and a lot of it is that they're pretty good con people. It's what we call social engineering. Uh, I mentioned earlier that it's not easy to hack any particular person. I may not be able to hack Abe, but um, um, for one thing, I'm not gonna come out and say that because a little bit of mystery will go a long way. So sometimes you could just imply you could do things and let people's imagination go with it and you can get, accomplish your goals uh, that way. Uh, but then the other piece of it is that, uh, you know, you can pull tricks like social engineering or sending emails. You know, if I really wanted to hack you specifically, I would try and get you to click on an email or find some other way to attack you because I don't know, you know, what's on your computer exactly. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're not attacking me. <laughs> um yeah it's it, it's such a fascinating topic it's been so much fun sort of reading your work because it's one of those things that you you start out you think hackers magicians mm, yeah okay maybe there's a link and then the more we the more i read about it in through your work the more kind of overlap there was to the point that now i sort of see them as sort of fundamentally the same i mean you you were talking about um the performance aspect of it made me think of the names elements as well. So true names is about this. Leaf the unseen is partly about this. The fact that names are power, that magicians would might hide their names, that knowing the name of a demon helps you dispel that demon or summon that demon. Um, and hackers also protect their names, use pseudonyms. So it's it it's been it's been a well my perspective, it's been a process of there's so many kind of pathways this project could go down. Was that kind of what you were thinking, what it felt like for you as well? Yeah, and it ways. was hard for me because I've had this idea of something I wanted to write about. So I'm a pretty good technologist, but only a, a semi-adequate scholar. So, um, you know, I, I went to Signum in an effort to improve something I wasn't that good at. You know, I, I mentioned the Babylon 5 conference where I totally failed uh, as an undergraduate trying to do, you know, master's and PhD level academic work. It just wasn't you know, possible. So I could have gone a lot of different ways with this. I'm equally interested in literature and psychology and politics uh, as much as technology, um, but I had kind of a head start on this. So I was really appreciative for folks like uh, Serena who were able to help me kind of put this into a pathway where I could at least say some of the stuff that I wanted to say, uh, but make it you know, uh, relevant and understandable to at least one audience. Uh, whereas yeah. otherwise it would have been, you know, very uh, vague and maybe to a wider audience, but like a popular uh, culture audience and not not academic. So right. it was really interesting. This isn't exactly what I had planned to write when I started out, you know, five years ago. Um, but I'm happy the way, with the way it went. And uh, I learned a lot in the process. I really, you know, picked up a lot of information, become a, became a better writer out of it. So I was very That's appreciative fantastic. of that opportunity. And that description of... I managed to say a little bit of what I wanted to say, but it was specific and it made sense to one audience. That's a great description of what good writing is, actually, especially good academic writing. Um, and you could you could do like a popular version of this thesis. In fact, please do so. I think this would make a great article, like this sort of thing in the conversation um, if you, uh, would be interested in if you know that website. Um, because it's something that a lot of people are really interested in and it speaks to a lot of people. But yeah, finding a way of kind of turning this into a 15,000 word kind of academic article thesis that said something definite, even if it wasn't, you know, wasn't possible to say absolutely everything you wanted to say about the subject that you've been thinking of for 20 years. So part of that process was um looking at Jung so Jung was someone uh, a theorist who allowed you to hone in and be quite specific about this hacker magician overlap can you say anything more about Jung yeah so um I, that was kind of the lens that I ended up looking at this through to uh, kind of pull it all together and a lot of that was you know based on the discussions that we had with Serena as well and uh, so there are a few things that Jung had to say that I think are really interesting. Uh, I've always been interested in them, in particular what he says about archetypes. 
Um, so archetypes are kind of like these recurring themes that are found in, you know, in culture and literature uh, and are identifiable, but they have psychological import. So uh, a Jungian archetype, uh, in particular, uh, the, the few that I looked at might be something like the wise old man. So you have this image of a wise old man. He's a scholar. He's a wizard. Uh, Jung called him the magician, doctor, priest, teacher, professor, or, or grandfather. And that same kind of category, I think we could probably now add scientist. We could maybe now add a uh, hacker as well. And that wise old man is somebody who's like the helper. He's the one who helps the hero. Um, so that relationship you had with him, I think, is, is very similar to the relationship you might have with a benevolent hacker. Uh, another one that came up a lot was uh, the idea of the trickster. So the trickster is, you know, literally what it says, a trickster uh, figure, someone who has uh, what Jung said was a penchant for slide jokes and malicious pranks. So think of the Native American coyote or Loki uh, or Bugs Bunny from the cartoons. Uh, so uh, hackers are exactly that. Hackers love their pranks. And I have to say I've pulled off some great pranks myself. Uh, but, you know, they'll be doing things like changing your roadside hazards to tell you that there's a zombie outbreak or, you know, setting off the, uh, you know, the, um, the bomb sirens or something like that. Uh, and then the final one I looked at in the paper was the shadow. So that's kind of that unacknowledged part of yourself that you have to integrate, that you have to accept. Uh, often the negative side, you know, the things that are socially unacceptable that you take with that. Um, so a shadow could apply to any other archetype as well. A wise old man could be either Gandalf, the good wizard, or it could be Saruman, the bad wizard. Um, and hackers kind of go the same way. We have black hat hackers who are the guys who do things for personal uh, pleasure um, or, you know, financial uh, benefit. The black hats, you know, from the uh, American Westerns or the white hats are the good guys. Um, or which would be the non-shadow versions of that. So I, I found that was a good way to look at it because they're pretty recognizable to people who've uh, looked at uh, some, you know, literary criticism and psychology before. Mm, yeah, it really kind of enabled you to pull everything together and have a kind of common language so that you're not just saying, hey, hackers, magicians, these are similar, they overlap, but you're saying from a Jungian perspective, they conform to the same archetypes um uh, or, the, or they are the same archetypes um and certainly yeah the kind of the wise old man the tricks of the shadow um really useful like terms to describe um types of magicians and types of hackers as well that was another revelation for me um didn't know there were so many different types of hackers i thought it was just one type um but there's there's some quite you know important distinctions there as there are with magicians as well um so yeah um <clears throat> uh we've got a question um about the text that you chose um from chris uh who says um how did you select your novels and were there novels you wanted to include in your thesis but didn't have room for so just to uh, remind everyone Werner Vinge uh uh is that how you say his name? Binge? I, I say Vingi, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced. So I'm no. I'm it's well, well, it's it's one of those magic names. Um, two, uh, two names, which was published in 1981, and then we have Charles Stross's The Laundry Files, which is a whole series, uh, which is still ongoing, and it started in 2004. And then we have this book, um, A Leaf the Unseen by G. Willow Wilson. So it's 2014, I think. Uh, 2012. Ah, uh, 12. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, I picked those books. So, there's a very practical reason why I picked those books, which is that every single one of them fit exactly what was I talk what I was talking about, which was hackers as magicians. So, there are a lot of books that where technology and magic are kind of mixed together, and I could have much uh, could have easily had a broader topic and talked about magic and technology, but here I'm talking about hackers specifically. So, these books all have that exact thing. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot of books out there. You know, I might be trying to coin the term cybermancy for only three books in existence. There's probably more, but uh, those were certainly the ones that I found that were uh, perfect for what I wanted to talk about. And there were some advantages to using those three as well. One is that there was about a 30-year span between the first one and the last one. So we could look at whether or not things changed a lot chronologically, you know, over time. Uh, and they honestly really didn't. They also dealt with a lot of the same themes. Uh, so um, some themes that all of those dealt with were things like uh, 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 like apotheosis, 
the ability to gain a lot of power or become near godlike through or transcendent through the power of magic or technology. That was one piece of it. Uh, you know, there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, each work looked at the uh, elements of criminality. So, you know, the hacker is always the other. You know, the image we have of a hacker is as usually a criminal, although there might be some good ones out there or maybe criminals that we like, you know, like Edward Snowden, who maybe did something good for society, even though they were technically traitors. Um, so the assumptions of criminality and the relationship to society, are they countercultural figures and things like that? Uh, and then kind of the other piece of that uh, that I found really interesting was the relationship to government. Um, so in most cases, government is a force for evil in these in these books. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's usually a government as an oppressive force and the hackers kind of fighting against that. Um, and that's true in all three. But the Laundry Files was interesting because it kind of flipped that around because the premise of the Laundry Files is that there are magicians who are basically low level government functionaries working for the UK government. And so their job is to keep the UK from getting overrun with, you know, gibbering tentacle face monsters. Um, so they actually gave an example of both evil government, which uh, unfortunately was the US government. They called the US psych parapsychology, you know, agency as the Nazgul. Um, so we were the kind of the evil guys here in the States, which I think makes sense actually, unfortunately. And then the UK had the good guys that were trying to, you know, fend off the, the Lovecraftian apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting because you're saying how these texts kind of helped you make your argument, but they also helped you test your argument. And you kind of touched on that just now because there is a lot of variety in those texts. Um, they're written by uh, different uh, writers of different nationalities, different religious backgrounds. Uh, they're very different in terms of form. I mean, yet there are all these similarities between them. So it's almost as if if you can find these overlaps and these similarities in three really different texts, then it kind of strengthens your argument that there is this thing called cybermancer fiction. And we, we keep on using that term, but we, we haven't actually, we, you haven't actually formally uh, defined yeah. it yet. Do you, do you want to? Uh, well, I, I kind of think we got to this a little bit, but um, let me see. I think I have it written down, but uh, um, it's, it's basically, uh, let me see here. I want to say it correctly. Um, I just highlighted yeah. so, fiction where mastery of technology or scientific lore, specifically by hackers, leads to magic or magical effects. Yeah. So it's kind of like technomancy, but for hackers, specifically that role of person. Right. So you're going to have to define technomancy. So technomancy well. is just uh, technology mixed with magic. I mean, it could go either way. There's there doesn't seem to be a real solid definition of it. Um, but technomancy sometimes means magic that affects technology or technology that affects magic or they work together. Um, I didn't uh, get too deep into that, but there's, you know, there's a lot of ways I guess it could go. Um, in my case, it's, it's I'm more focused on one direction where somehow right. you have these technological systems or skills that are somehow enabling you to become a magician, a wizard. Uh, as an example, in the um, in the laundry files, uh, people use computers. So what the, the premise of Laundry Files is that if you can do advanced mathematics, doing mathematics summons these otherworldly entities that you can then, they come and colonize your brain and then give you magical powers. So you use computers to um, safely summon them and control them. Um, so literally technology gives you magical powers. That's kind of what I was trying to go to. I, and I think also another distinction is that technomancy treats magic and technology as separate, but they can be linked. They could, you know, you can use a magic spell on an ATM and get it to give you money or something like that, or, or um, uh, may, maybe maybe it can work the other way around as well. You can use a computer in a in a summoning ritual, but they're they're distinct things. Whereas in cybermancer fiction. In text like, um, well, like Alif the Unseen, you know, Alif is a hacker, he's a technologist, and that it has magical effects, and it's much more difficult to separate the two. The technology is the magic, and the magic is the technology. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and there's always, you know, each work does a little bit differently, but there's this kind of gray line 
Alif the Unseen is a great example because you can't really tell where the technology ends and the magic begins. You know, he's kind of in this, he goes into a number of kind of uh, trance states or, you know, fugue states or, or you know, moments of uh, great inspiration where he is physically typing on a computer, but in his mind, he's in a totally different space, seeing different things um, and um, doing things that ultimately are magical, that are beyond the reach of technology. And I contrast that with something like um, uh, uh, Jim Butcher's um, books, you know, uh, the magician, what's, uh, I know you guys know who I'm talking about. Jim Butcher, he's an American author. He's, uh, he writes the, uh, the books about the detective in Chicago. Dresden. Dresden. So Dresden Files. So in Dresden Files, magicians, like, make computers go on the fritz. So he has to drive an old, Vol old Volkswagen. You know, it's a very clear line. Here's my magical field, and it makes things break. You know, it's actually one of the things that always annoyed me is that uh, one conceit that they typically use is that magic breaks guns, which makes no sense. Like, what does it like make the oxygen not work or chemical reaction not function? You know. <laughs> um, yeah, and and just a final note about these terms. Um, a technomancy is a kind of defined term that exists already, but cybermancy is your own creation. Although he, cybermancer is the name of a Marvel Comics character, but it's not the name of kind of a, a, a group of text or literature or fiction. And I think it does need to exist, actually. So, um, you know, let's hope that this catches on, or, or even if it doesn't, I think it's a, it's it's great to have found that that niche and that. Um, that thing that exists that hasn't been described yet. Uh, and that's how things do get described. I mean, um, uh, is it True Names that coined the, the term cyberspace? Is that right? Uh, no, actually, um, True Names was the first book to present what was cyberspace, like right. a virtual immersive thing. It was William Gibson, I think, who, who technically coined it a few years later. Right. Uh, romancer, so, if I'm not mistaken. True Names just missed out, but at it, least it, well, yeah. it and the name came later. But that, yeah, there we so go. He didn't coin the term, but he got, had the first image of a real true, you know, cyberspace as we understand it now, uh, back in 1981. But you, so you've done, you've done better because you've not only described it, but you've also named it. So, uh, yeah, well, everybody well, go out and talk about it. And maybe you'll, you'll exactly. catch up. Tell all your friends about cybermancer right, fiction. Right. Um, fantastic. You say in a, in a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I see Mary has your, her hand up. Um, so we can go to you, Mary, if you would like to be unmuted, you can speak. Um, but I also know that Serena wants to be unmuted and speak as well. So if we go for Serena first and then Mary, if you would like to be unmuted, I can unmute you and you can say a few words as well. Um, and if not, then you can also type out your question in the Q&A box. Um, but let's go over to Serena first. So let me see if I can do this. I um, do the, uh, there we go. Hi, Serena. There we go. Hello. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm so delighted to be That's here great. and hear all about this. Great job in your thesis. Uh, we need to get Cybermancer on the TV Tropes website. So let's work on that. All right. You got an account? Uh, no, it's probably pretty easy to sign up, right? Probably. But, That's actually a really good website. There's a lot of great awesome. uh, definitions yeah. and stuff on there. I got found it really valuable. Yeah, and we don't need an account. Mark can hack it. All right, Mark, just hack it. Uh, right. Yeah. All right. So that's the other thing, you know. All right. Technically, probably I could, but the I'm a white hat hacker, maybe or okay. gray hat at least. But I don't hack people unless they pay me 200 bucks an hour. So that's the difference between like a you know, <laughs> most hackers and me. I'm a consultant, so you have to pay a lot. That's good to know. <laughs> Consulting hacker. Um, here's my question mark and it's going to take me a little bit to develop it we've been talking sort of around what is magic and there are so many different kinds and there are different ideas of what is magic throughout history you've talked about sort of the pre-scientific or the pseudo-scientific magic now the the kind that i study is the turn of the 20th century late victorian early modernist the occult and the hermetic magic. And it's much more psychological and personal than it is external or spectacular, right? We don't have people necessarily like casting fireworks out of their fingertips or fighting dragons or transforming themselves or going invisible. Now they did have spells to do those, but they didn't usually uh, get that high along initiation. It was more 
for personal enlightenment, right? They were transforming their own souls by visualization techniques and memorization and the vibration of words and so forth. Um, so this question could go one of two ways. The first way it could go would be, um, do you see that kind of the hermetic occult being in resonance, resonance with technology? Or the other way the question could go would be, do you know if there's any literature that blends the two, that blends more of the occult rather than the spectacular wizard with the hacker? Yeah, well, I, I think there is, I think there is a lot of overlap. So the, you know, the, um, we, we often look back to uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as, as kind of the first work of science fiction. And that is really uh, in that kind of era where so many scientific discoveries were taking place that the abilities of technology were truly seeming magical. Like it wouldn't be that surprising if we could really bring somebody back from back from the dead. You know, they're discovering all of these things about like how oxygen works and how electricity works that seem uh, kind of magical. So it was a really interesting time. And I, I think it's no coincidence uh, that, you know, Frankenstein uh, mentions a lot of these, uh, a lot of hermetic magicians like Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus, uh, along with a lot of the real scientists as well. The other thing that uh, came to mind when you're talking is that uh, hermetic magic, you're right, is it's not necessarily about overt power. Um, and if you look at some of the works that are, are kind of core to that for those learners, like the Cor Corpus Hermeticum, you know, it's not just about here's how I'm going to cast a fireball. You know, there's a lot of philosophy in it. You know, it kind of mixes natural philosophy. It, it you know, it, and even things like, you know, positive visualization, you know, Christianity and things like that. Uh, it, it's not that same kind of overt thing. But the thing that I focused on is that they are, in a sense, technological because we're talking about things that can be learned. It's not magic that you get because you're the seventh son of the seventh son. It's something that you can go out of your way to find. You go through kind of a scientific process uh, to, you know, read this information, to uh, understand the information. You know, if you're an alchemist, you have to go through, you know, all of these different stages and so on. Uh, and it's really interesting because alchemists, you know, you might think of that as magic. Uh, part of what they were doing was chemistry, but part of their, you know, goal was to become, you know, uh, transcendent uh, through the process of the learning and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, you know, the, I don't know how to exactly put it because I don't know that much about, um, you know, alchemist exactly, but uh, you're right that I think that there's a lot of overlap there, but I think that in particular, the fact that it's kind of scientific, it's something that's learned, has a lot of overlaps with technology in the sense that something that you can go out and understand, something that's written down, it's lore in a certain sense. Hmm, that makes sense. It's more of something that you learn and practice and it's a craft. And of course there were technologies involved in it too, like they had to make alembics and wands and different instruments. Um, did you know that, you know, when Rutherford and Saudi first caused an element to change into another, um, one of them yelled, it's transmutation, and the other said, don't call it that, they'll think we're bloody <laughs> alchemists. <laughs> uh, but I'm still not sure if I see that that overlaps specifically like with computer technology, unless it's something to do with the coding and the importance of, you know, languages and conlangs and numerical patterns and things like that. Well, I think, I don't know if you've ever talked to a real, uh, real math nerd, you know, the people do uh, get a sense of the sublime when they're looking at math. And I think it's maybe that same sense of sublime that there is an underlying system, you know, that there is something. And when you begin to understand it, it starts to make sense. It sees you, helps you to see the inherent interconnectedness of all things. And that's where th I think maybe things get a little bit spiritual. And certainly we get that experience uh, when we're hacking too, or just computer programming for that matter. When you're really in the zone, uh, you do have kind of these transcendent moments where you're really focused, you're on task. Um, I don't, I wouldn't exactly call that magical, but you're certainly using a lot of acquired lore and you're, you know, putting your brain through certain exercises that aren't too different from a meditation or something else. Mm, yeah, that's well said. And you're right, that that is sort of parallel to their meditation and discovering the pattern behind things. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank uh, one thing you. I mentioned real briefly, too, was 
uh, kind of this connection between uh, hermetic magic and goetic magic. So uh, there's there's a, kind of this idea that um, you, there may be different tracks for magic, you know, like not like good magic versus bad magic necessarily, but you might have magia or magia, which is more of a natural magic, maybe more uh, divine focused, you know, things that maybe are part of the cosmic order that come from God or something like that. Uh, which you could then compare to goetic magic, which is more manipulative, uh, possibly. So summoning demons or um, goetic magic is more scientifically oriented. Um, and uh, I, I found that, um, and Tom Shippey talks about this in some of his works on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, but I found it real interesting that both Tolkien and Lewis associated technology with evil magic. In both the planet books, you have Nice, which is this group of you know, magic, magician scientists who are out there doing evil. And then you can compare that to, uh, you know, the um, the good guys who are using kind of God approved magic. And then in Tolkien, you have two wizards. You have, might have Saruman, who is, you know, a technological guy who tears down the forest and makes forges and builds, you know, pits and does genetic engineering to make new kinds of orcs and stuff. And then compare that to Gandalf, who is doing, you know, good magic and, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, maybe an angel or something like that. So it's interesting to me that there's association with technology and evil magic. And I kind of blame the Tolkien and Lewis a little bit for this. It was a reaction to, you know, their age. And I don't think they were wrong in what they objected to in their age. But I think that this idea is kind of stuck in the recesses of authors' minds over the last, you know, 80 years and has gotten regurgitated in a few different uh, iterations, maybe unfairly tainting the idea of technology as evil or black magic. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking um, about the Millennium Bug actually the other day, and I was thinking how scary that was in the Simpsons episode where everything, uh, the Millennium Bug makes everything attack everyone else like it's a kind of um, magical onslaught or, or, or whatever. Um, so I, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a huge other topic in itself about kind of, uh, how we see technology and, uh, uh, how powerful it is and if it's evil at all. Um, and the other thing I was thinking of when you were talking about, um, the occult kind of magic is Ouija boards and aren't they a kind of graphical user interface where you are sort of like, you know, you're interacting in a kind of magic way, but are you doing it in a very specific focused communicative way? Um, sort of hacking the afterlife in a way, perhaps. Yeah, and it, that's a great point, too. And that was one of the things that I focused on in the paper as well, is that both magic and computers work by manipulating metaphor, metaphorical mm -hmm. constructs. So if you look at, you know, like uh, the, the classical voodoo doll, you know, using sympathetic magic, you might make a little poppet doll to represent the person you hate and then a pin and then you put the pin in there. And then the idea is that the magic is going to understand what you're trying to do and then harm them, you know, where they're 50 miles away. That's not much different from what I do in hacking. You know, you could substitute a computer or an IP address, the IP address being the way that I can contact that and an attack program. You know, right. uh, the metaphor is, is built into language, it's built into magic, and it's built into technology at yeah. really, really low levels. And uh, mm -hmm. um, Bernard Bingy says something really cool about that, in fact. Do we have time for me to, no, we probably don't, but. I, ah, I sure, sure, sure. Want. So um, the, he talks about that, and he talks about why in his book uh, metaphorical magic seems to be seems to work. So these hackers uh, are they they manipulate their computers in what appears like a fantasy role playing game, casting spells and stuff. And he says, Mister Slippery had often speculated just how the simple notion of using high resolution EEGs, in other words, they had little electrodes hooked to their head, had caused the development of the quote, magical world, end quote, representation of data space. Some argued that sprites, reincarnation, spells, and castles were the natural tools here, more natural than the atomistic 12th, 20th century notions of data structures, programs, files, and communication programs, protocols. It was, they argued, just more convenient for the mind to use the global ideas of magic as the tokens to manipulate this new environment. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, we're looking towards the end of our time, but we've got enough time for a few more questions. And Mary, you've got you've very patiently had your hand up. So I'm going to unmute you. If you would like to say anything, you can then unmute yourself. If that makes sense. I, okay. Yeah, there we go. Hi. Oh, Hi, Mary. Okay. 
This is so interesting. I would love to, sorry, I'd love to sit with you all and just have a conversation. And as I listen to you talk, I've gone from a boring question to something I consider more interesting. So the first is, um, I was really interested in Serena's conversation. Can you hear me okay? Just a minute. Yeah, we can hear you fine, yeah, and the dog as well, but that's great. Um, you know, it's really interesting. There's um, Historically, there's the occult and then there's mysticism. And the occult looks to the outer to manipulate, whereas mysticism first starts with the inner work. So like you can go back to the ancient Vedas and the inner work and the mystical experiences gave insights into the nature of reality. And, um, and you can pull that forward. There's a, and I can't remember the names of these, these scientists, but there was one scientist who, who actually was shown the benzene ring. Um, and it, it came from inner work and then he was able to uh, take it into, into science. And um, there was a book uh, several years ago, The Dancing Wu Li Masters, which was just absolutely phenomenal about the interface of, of physics and um, mysticism. So I'm not asking a question, but I'm just kind of leading up to it. I quoted um, that so, book in my paper too. You're right, it's a very interesting book. Yeah, and also um, maybe you'd like to comment on that, but my first question was, as, as I'm I was listening to you talk, Mark, was Battlestar Galactica was such a phenomenal series. And they, and they took us through um, what seemed to be magic that existed in other worlds and mystical, either, either occult magic or, or mystical. But then at the very end, they had those techno mages. You did you ever, did you, do you remember that? Do you remember seeing that? It was um, this, this person who came from far in the future. And he, he was like the, what you're talking about, a techno mage was his name. I thought maybe you might know about him and hmm. talk about that. I don't remember that piece, but I love it when they do that. I mean, that was what made Babylon 5 so great. You can place these scientific works in a cultural context that, you know, makes sense. You know, it gives them a spiritual place. It, it lets you align that with the mythology and the, you know, and the, and the magic that we already have. It's great to think that, you know, there might be folks out there <laughs> thinking yeah. the same thoughts that we are, either internally through mysticism or reaching outwards. Who knows? Well, this is this is really cool. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you, Mary. And yeah, lots of things to think about. And, and great that Mark's research has inspired you to to make connections yourself. Um, uh, yeah, and and sort of on that point about Battlestar Galactica, I suppose Star Wars is the other big thing of mm, that kind yeah. of overlap um, between the kind of spiritual magic and technology. Um, okay, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time, but we have um, we have a few last questions, uh, so we'll just rattle through them. Um, Joe asks, what's the urtext of Cybermancer fiction? And he suggests The Nine Billion Names of God by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, any thoughts no. on, on that? I think I've read that, but it's been a long time. I will make a note of that mm -hmm. uh, and get back to it. Um, there were a few that... Um, that I really, I was inspired by. Um, there was uh, uh, Zelazny had uh, Lords of Light and Shadow, I think yeah. it was was called. That one uh, kind of uh, was one that inspired me. Um, there was uh, very early, if you look not at Hacker specifically, um, but uh, it was the, the something enchanter, the like the unready enchanter or something like that. I could get some some different lists, but there's a lot out there, but I wasn't familiar with the one you're talking about. I think I've read it, but it's been a couple of decades. So I'll have mm. to look back again, but if you could find more, um, I'd love to get them on the list. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, do, do uh, Joe, do get in touch with uh, with Mark with suggestions. I think that question of what is the urtext and what is kind of, can we flesh out that idea of cybermancer fiction is is one of the next steps for this project uh, if, if you wanted to pursue that and I hope you do. Um, and Serena uh, says in the comments, Philip Pullman unites tech and religion slash magic in his dark materials books. That's true. 
um, Lev Grossman's The Magician's Trilogy also does that to an extent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. be, you know, there were loads of books that we could have talked about or you could have written about. Um, Chris says, I'm thinking um, Anathem by Neil Stevenson would fit. Um, that's not a, a work I'm familiar with, um, but yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I read that too. Oh, it was Incomplete Enchanter is the one I was trying to think of. That was a real early one. Um, uh, but yeah, we should. I could probably start putting together a bibliography. It's a lot harder to find ones that have specifically hacker characters because those are a lot fewer and further between, especially because they really didn't exist before 1960s academia. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, if we kind of broaden the field a little bit to, you know, science and magic interactions, more of the technomancy side, then yeah, there's a lot of great works. I mean, more than I could count. Yeah, and lots lots of work to be done in the future as well. Um, but fun work. Uh, and Sarah asks, uh, and this will probably be the last question we take from the audience. Uh, what was the one idea you had to cut that you really loved? <sighs> well, I think the the thing that probably got cut that I liked the most was actually something that we talked about, which was the whole connection with hermetic magic and goetic uh, magic versus, you know, kind of the natural magia versus goetia. It's um, how it's represented in literature. Um, I went down that rabbit hole extensively uh, and it, it just didn't make it into the final cut. In fact, I probably wrote, you know, five or 10 pages on it that didn't make it. So I think that was probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, and I think it's something that I'd, I'd still like to go back to. I think there's something to be said. I think we can learn something about ourselves and about society if we look at why we associate, you know, um, insane magicians and mad scientists together. You know, why, why do we have this idea that technology is always going to be grasping? It's always going to be manipulative. It's always going to be, you know, technology is inherently neutral. Um, so why do we have this kind of idea of something that's learned or something that can be figured out, you know, that's, you know, geometry, drawing circles on the ground. Why is that the bad kind of magic as mm. opposed to trees and nature? Uh, I think it really says something about our relationship to science and technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and well, that leads us on to kind of final thoughts um, before we um, finish. Um, Oh, gosh, yes, Rina's dropped a really <laughs> great question. Traceable all the way back to the Garden of Eden, our nervous relationship with knowledge. Um, quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> we might have, to, we might have to, to leave that one for another time. But um, yeah, I yeah. thought we just... Well, you know, uh, we're, we really are uh, poorly gender balanced in computer hacking. So, you know, we get to go start talking gender, too. I mean, that's a whole topic I didn't get into, but... You know, right. the whole uh, gender issue is huge. There's just not enough uh, good female hackers, which is why I tried yeah. to hire them as, as often as I could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, great. Uh, well, perhaps we could end with any tips for students. Mark, you've done the master's, you've done the thesis. Um, any, any words of advice uh, for your fellow students? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, through this whole process, um, the one thing that I actually did that I found really helpful was in every class, we have three or four different papers and I tried to make at least one paper related to my topic somehow. So I had, I could do research that I was able to use later and try out ideas. Uh, and that's one of the things I really liked about my instructors here at Signum is that um, they would put up with my experiments. You know, I could kind of go off on a tangent as long as I had a decent idea, I could do it. So I would suggest that, you know, get an idea. If you're going to go for a master's and you know you're going to write a thesis, start the program with that in mind and try and knock off one little chunk at a time uh, for every class you take and maybe experiment and see what happens with it. Uh, and the other one was uh, be organized early with a good citation manager. I wish I had gotten Zotero or one of these other programs up online, you know, two decades ago because I've forgotten and lost more information than ever made it into the paper. And it makes me sad. Well, it's that's it, something like a magician would say, isn't it? Is all this all this arcane not knowledge that's uh, lost to the ages, perhaps? So it's very appropriate. Um, but it, yeah, very good advice. Um, okay, great. Well, um, it leaves that just leaves me with with saying, uh, well done, Mark. Um, 
This is a tremendous piece of research. It's a really excellent thing that you've done uh, and also well done for completing the master's program. It's a long, difficult program and the thesis research at the end is a, is a big, uh, big challenge as well and a big step up from anything uh, that, that people have done before. So it's hopefully was, I mean, it sounds like it was a very useful and uh, and, and, and positive experience for you, but also I'm sure it was a challenging experience, not least because it was an ambitious and difficult um, topic that has generated so much discussion and excited, excitement tonight, because it is one of those topics that you could, you know, turn into a big book or, um, or just sort of take in so many different directions. So well done for that but particularly doing so in a year of a pandemic um where other things were going on as well so um you know really do pat yourself on the back for that um i, I we were talking the other day about how difficult it's been to focus on research and writing uh with everything going on uh, i think we've all found that and so this makes uh, your achievement all the more special and remarkable um and you should be proud of yourself uh, we we're, we're all proud of you so congratulations, well done. Lots of comments um, saying congratulations from the audience uh, and uh, lots of people saying um, really fascinating as well. So thank you very much, uh, Mark, for presenting. Thank you all of you for attending um, and do continue the conversation with Mark if you would like to. Uh, and Mark, we very much look forward to hearing more from you about this topic. Um, please do keep sharing things about this, um, get it out there somewhere, um, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as putting the thesis into the Signum Library, where I'm sure it will be a very useful resource for students um, in the future. Well, I couldn't have done it with all the, without all the help that I got here, especially uh, you, Gabriel, who's, who helped me through this whole process and uh, actually taught me a couple other classes earlier on and, and Serena as well for her input and everybody else, Chris from being at conferences and, uh, you know, all the other folks along the line. So I appreciate it. We have a great community here at Signum that can have these kind of discussions, that can be interested about this. We can be upfront nerds and not feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks then, everyone. Bye-bye. Right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye.